I'd like to read from Matthew chapter 26. We're coming near the end of Matthew's Gospel. We've been over quite some time looking primarily at the theme of the Kingdom of Heaven in Matthew's Gospel. And uh, by the time we come to Easter Sunday, I'm hoping that we'll arrive at the climax of Matthew. Um, The last time we looked at this, we looked at chapters 24 and 25, which was a, a fairly significant Uh, slot and then at the first part of Matthew 26 Um, and this morning the part that I want to concentrate on is a very small part of Matthew chapter 26 Um, but let's just to get the context of it and refresh our minds and some of the stuff that we looked at before begin at verse 6 of Matthew 26 it's on page 996 of the copies of the Bible that's in the pew While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. And I want to end the reading at the end of verse 18. I wonder, are you familiar with the phrase or the concept of a kairos moment? You may well have heard it used in the context of uh, different con- situations in parts of the world. It's been used by some Christian folks in leadership, and they thought about the situation in South Africa. It's been used here in Northern Ireland, representing a moment in time when something significant could happen. I read a report by the American uh, pastor and writer Jim Wallace, who was very involved in the Make Poverty History Project at the time of the G8 summit in Edinburgh. And Wallace said of an interfaith gathering in America that the main speaker, the Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town, South Africa, noted the moral convergence of such a wide spectrum of American religious life and pronounced this as a kairos moment. When regular time, chronos, gives way to a spirit-filled moment in history, And a new sense of time takes over. Now, I don't know whether that's a little overstatement on the G8 summit in Edinburgh. But anyway, kairos means time. The word means time. But it means more a particular moment in time. There is another word used in the New Testament for time. And that's the word for chronos. Now, that's a word you'll recognize in terms of chronology or chronometer, like I wear on my wrist here. I thought I'd show you a bigger picture of my nice Rolex, uh, which I wear. I collect Rolex watches, as some of you will know. All the different parts of the world I travel to, I look for the bus stations and the train stations, and I buy fake Rolex watches there. 
think I've 15 now. <laughs> I'll not get too carried away in this, but I see this as the poor part of the world reacting against the rich West. I know it's supposed to be illegal, but who cares? Um, the word for time, which the Bible uses elsewhere, is chronos. And it is this idea of time passing, of linear movement of time, from which we get the concept of chronology. But kairos is different. Kairos is not about measuring the passage of time, but about recognizing the significance of a moment in time, or a thing being very timely. I found an interesting uh, example of this and the use of Kairos on a website of a film production company in South Africa. A very strong South African flavour here this morning. The company is called Kairos Moment Films and they specialise in short commercials and short films and they have a strap line which reads Kairos Moment, a moment defined not by seconds but by impact. And they have a a terrific uh, promotional video which, um, if I can show you, I will let you see just now. And um, this is a a promotional video of their their company. It's going to be quite a small screen, but I'd like you to listen to the words of the song that accompany this one-minute promotional. The theme is about birth, the birth of their company. And watch carefully, because it's about the birth of pigs and the birth of a child. And in case you can't see the screen too closely, when he looks at his mobile phone the first time, the text message says, hurry, it's coming. There's a beauty that's sublime. There are moments that define. Pivotal, spiritual moments. When water turns to wine. Cowboys cry. Everybody prays. Oh, It is South African, and that's maybe where the context between or the connection between the birth of piglets and the baby is made. I'm not sure. Not being South African, I wouldn't know, but the folks can keep me right at the back. But listen to the words of the song that we're singing. There's a beauty. There's one line which is obviously, I don't know how on earth it got in there, but there's a beauty that's sublime. There are moments that define pivotal, spiritual moments when water turns to wine and cowboys cry. I don't know if I get that bit. Everybody, everybody prays, all them days, all the past, one of those days, Kairos moments echo in eternity, divine appointments shaping our destiny. These guys understand the concept of Kairos as opposed to simply Kronos, the passage of time, and they have used it very powerfully in their presentation. What interests me about the passage that we read together this morning is Jesus' statement in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus says, or Matthew records him as saying to his disciples, go and tell this person in Jerusalem that the teacher says, my appointed time is near. 
The word that is used for time in Matthew 26 and verse 18, the term that Jesus uses is best understood by this word karos. My appointed karos moment is at hand. I find this text very striking, though I've discovered that it doesn't necessarily rate highly in the, the minds of many other people. And I plan to take it in two sections. I want this morning for us to think about the context of this statement that Jesus makes. My appointed time is near. And then I want us to think about the implications of this statement for Jesus and for ourselves. So first of all, let's think about the context in which it appears. If you look at the passage in front of you, you'll see that it almost doesn't get noticed. In fact, it doesn't get noticed. Matthew records it. But it's just completely bypassed by events and everything that's actually happening at this particular time. Um, as you look at the text, the, the disciples want to know where they can prepare the Passover. That's what's on their minds. Jesus tells them, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. And the disciples don't seem to notice, and I generally don't seem to notice as I pass through this passage, the significance of this little statement that Jesus makes, my appointed time is near but lights should start to flash and sirens should start to sound in our heads when we read those words my appointed time is near but it gets lost in the Passover preparations and it seems as if it's not picked up again even in Matthew's gospel it was certainly lost on the disciples who couldn't possibly grasp the full significance of what Jesus was saying but it's not lost on Matthew as he recalls all of this and recounts it for us in his gospel. It certainly wasn't lost on the Apostle John, as he writes in the Gospel of John. He uses a slightly different term throughout his gospel. He uses the term are, but to the same effect. For example, we read in John chapter 2 in the first four verses, when Jesus' mother has been a guest at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus is there as well. It says, the next day Jesus' mother was a guest at a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother spoke to him about the problem. They have no more wine, she told him. How does that concern you and me? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. And you pick this theme up in John's Gospel on a number of occasions until in John chapter 12 there is a sudden change. Just after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the same passage, the same context in which Matthew is writing, in which Jesus says, or John says, uh, records Jesus uh, in dealing with his disciples and Jesus speaking these words, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. And the time there is the hour has come. In John 13, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave the world and return to his Father. Now he showed the disciples the full extent of his love. John follows this kind of theme very closely through his Gospel. And Matthew is doing the same thing here in Matthew 26 and verse 18. And he uses this term kairos. And just seems to be slipped in. Because the context in which it was used was lost in the midst of all the activity surrounding Passover. But the context is not just the Passover celebration and preparations 
recorded in Matthew 26. There is a wider context to the statement that Jesus makes, my appointed time is near. And it's the wider setting of the whole of Old Testament history. Because right back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, when God is speaking a word of judgment as a consequence of human sinful rebellion and the temptation by the evil one, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush or strike your head and you will strike his heel. Part of God's judgment on the serpent. And there was a time to come when that would be fulfilled. And God vowed to Abraham that he would bless him richly. I will multiply your descendants into countless millions like the stars of the sky and the stand of the seashore. They will conquer their enemies and through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And as Paul points out in Galatians 3.16, that seed is singular and is focused on a person and an event, a moment in history. And throughout the Old Testament, with, for example, the Passover and the deliverance from Egypt and the entry into the Promised Land, there is this constant image of a salvation that was to come. The prophets take up the same theme. Isaiah's great visions of the suffering servant of the Lord. And Jeremiah's insight, where he records God's word as, This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, I will write them on their hearts, I will be their God and they will be my people. There was a salvation that was coming. There was something that was going to happen. A salvation that is realized in Jesus. And what Jesus says in Matthew 26, 18, my appointed time is near, has to do with all that the Old Testament has been foretelling. All the time that has passed, all the chronos that has passed from the fall to this moment in the week before the crucifixion is being focused on one moment. One kairos moment, which will change everything. A moment that will define. A pivotal, spiritual moment. A kairos moment that will echo in eternity. A divine appointment that will reshape our destiny. In the immediate context, the phrase is lost. It's lost in everyone. It's even lost almost in the text of Scripture. In the big context of things in terms of the Old Testament, it's all pointing in this one direction, all to this moment, this kairos moment, when something profound would happen. But what are the implications? The implications for Jesus and for us. The implications for Jesus are huge. To carry this knowledge, to come to this point, To know that all of history has been moving to this event is an unbelievable weight for any person to carry. Who can forget Tony Blair's great moment at the time of the signing of the Belfast Agreement? I believe his phrase was, this is not a time for cliches, but I really do feel that the hand of history is on our shoulders. But for Jesus, can you imagine just how true that was? There are no cliched overstatements possible in this situation. And what strikes me forcibly is the generosity of spirit that is demonstrated by Jesus. Here he is. His disciples want to know about the practicalities. Where are we going to hold the Passover and prepare the Passover? And he's dealing with the practicalities of life. He's instructing the disciples to go and make the preparations because his appointed time was near. But who hears him? Who understands? 
Who has any sense of what this man is carrying at this particular time? Most of us aren't very good at facing significant moments without telling someone. Not necessarily because we want to boast, but it can be a terrible isolation, a terrible loneliness, not being able to share something that's really huge in your life. Those of you who live alone may understand this much better than the rest of us. The lack of someone to know, someone to care, someone to share profound moments with can be a very painful thing. And yet that is Jesus' situation. He's eaten at Simon's house. There's been a big meal there. He has watched Judas walk out of the house and into the darkness and he knows what that is all about. His disciples want to come and know how to make preparation for the Passover and he deals with that in polite and almost, I think, inconsequential conversation while all the time carrying this knowledge that his appointed time is near. That Kairos moment, which the whole of Scripture points to, the whole of the Old Testament bears witness to, is about to happen. In fact, it isn't until he is alone in Gethsemane that we will see him begin to break in human terms under the strain of this. But the awareness that we see in Gethsemane as Jesus prays there was something he carried throughout that week. And no one gets it. No one saw it. No one shared it. No one noticed. Simply that the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. The implications for Jesus of this little statement are immense. It's not just the hand of history that's on his shoulder. The whole juggernaut of our human sinful experience in history is trundling down at a huge rate. And it's going to hit on Jesus big time. The son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God is about to take his throne in the kingdom of heaven by dying. A Kairos moment that will echo in eternity. A divine appointment shaping our destiny. And he carries it alone. But what about the implications for us? I'd like to read another passage to you. You'll find it in 2 Corinthians if you'd like to turn to it. It's on page 1161 of the copies of the Bible in the pews. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Page 1161. And I want to read from verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, says the Apostle Paul, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. 
We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. In those verses, in verses 14 and 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul establishes that the death of Jesus Christ is the defining moment that echoes through eternity. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. In verses 16 and 17 of that passage, Paul speaks of the transformation of the individual that can take place because of the death of Christ. And Paul talks about how his view of Jesus has changed and how people are changed through faith in Jesus Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. In verses 18 to 20 of the passage that we read, Paul speaks of God's work in Christ as the ministry of reconciliation. God has God reconciled believers to himself. He was reconciling the world to himself. He has given us this message of reconciliation. And Paul calls those in Corinth to be reconciled to God. To be believers who live by faith in Jesus, which is an issue that he raises in the opening part of chapter 5. And in verse 21, Paul sets out in a very short phrase... How this gospel works. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 6, Paul says, don't squander this amazing grace, this amazing kindness of God. And he quotes from Isaiah 49 and verse 8, which in the Greek translation of the Old Testament scripture says, In the kairos of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. And Paul says, therefore, to the church in Corinth, now is the time. The kairos moment is the phrase that he uses. Of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. We all think of ourselves as getting older. Even if we live in denial. We all place ourselves on some moment of history. A date of birth. The first day we went to school. Your first kiss. Or where Kennedy was, or where you were when Kennedy was killed. Or, for a new generation, where you were when the planes hit the towers. We all sit somewhere on a chronology and we place ourselves on it in various ways as we get older. We define ourselves very often by where we are in age or career or history. We think of ourselves as on the move. Like us, the Apostle Paul thinks in the same kind of way. For example, he says in Philippians 3.12 that he's pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of him. There is this sense of moving through time. 
And he believed that time was marching on to the glorious redemption of all things. And you can read about that in the first part of chapter 5. But Paul also believed that in the grace of God, every moment is a kairos moment. Every moment from the time of the cross and the resurrection to the Lord returns again is not just a moment in the passage of history, but is a moment, an opportunity, a time of knowing God's grace. Now, not because the date is 68 AD or whatever it might have been when he wrote this letter to the Corinthians, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. And Paul calls us to be reconciled to God. Now. In this moment of time. For some of us here this morning, that may mean coming to receive God's grace of forgiveness for the first time. For some here this morning, to hear what scripture is saying, as the Apostle Paul speaks in these terms, may mean to come for the first time. That this is a kairos moment in which you come and trust yourselves to God's grace and God's forgiveness. And maybe in a very real and literal sense, today is to be for you the day of salvation. I have met and I have heard people speak about how they have missed their opportunity. That the time of salvation for them has passed. And they live with a measure of despair and tragedy. Maybe because of some of the things they have heard preachers say. Maybe because they have misunderstood what the Apostle Paul has to say. They feel that they have missed the time of God's salvation for them. They didn't move when they should have. Or they didn't move before they committed some terrible sin. If that's you. If that's how you think. Then you have misunderstood how the Bible uses words for time. Of course we're all getting older. Of course every day that passes is a new opportunity to sin and stack them up. Of course every day that passes means we are a day closer to eternity. But each moment between the cross and the resurrection and the coming again of the Lord Jesus, each moment you breathe is a kairos moment of opportunity to be right with God. Because it's kairos that is used. It's that concept that the Apostle Paul is speaking about. Now is the moment, the opportunity of salvation. Paul isn't talking about the days of the week. Paul isn't talking about days in your life or years in your life. He's not talking about the time on your watch. He's talking about the day in which we live as a day of opportunity to know God's grace. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me ask you this morning, are you reconciled to God? Are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Whatever kind of terms we want to use about this. In verse 10 of chapter 5, Paul says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Are you ready to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? You can be. Not because you will be able to hide, but because you can be, by God's grace, hidden in Jesus Christ. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you believe that? Are you ready to spend the rest of your life following this Jesus Christ who had no sin but became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God? That's what lies at the heart of being and becoming a Christian. Are you reconciled to God? This is a kairos moment, a defining moment. But Paul's appeal is not just to people who are not Christians. In fact, that's not primarily his appeal at all because he's writing to the church in Corinth. His appeal is to Christians as well. Do you, whoever you are, however long you've been a Christian, need to be reconciled to Jesus Christ? Have the choices that you make separated you from fellowship with Jesus Christ? Put a wedge between any credible Christian testimony and the way you live your life. Is your lifestyle a denial of faith in Jesus Christ to the people who know you best or see you most? Do the attitudes that you hold mock a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. If so, hear what God's word is saying. Now is a kairos moment. Now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. When Jesus said, my appointed time is near, no one noticed. There was no one there to sit and talk it over with him. There was no one there to get alongside and to pray for him. No one understood. No one appreciated the burden that he carried during that week. No one appreciated the burdens he was yet to carry on the cross. And yet the whole of human history, the whole chronos of time was moving towards that moment, that kairos moment. For there are moments that define pivotal spiritual moments, kairos moments that echo in eternity, divine appointments that shape our destiny. 
And when God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that was the greatest moment. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray for some help and insight in understanding the significance of what it is that Jesus says to his disciples, which is recorded almost just in passing for us. But we stop here this morning at that text. We stop at those words. We stop to ponder them, to think of their significance in the whole scheme of Matthew's gospel. And we are confronted by the need to ponder about our own lives. Lord, our prayer this morning is that for any who are worshipping with us here this morning who are not Christians, who do not know the grace of your forgiveness in Jesus Christ, that this day may be for them a kairos moment, a moment of grace. A moment of finding themselves hid in Christ. And for all of us who take your word and read it, and out of our familiarity with it, so quickly pass over the important things it has to say to us. May we think again this morning about our attitudes, our choices and our lifestyle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.